At that time, then, they went into their quarters very happily, for they had provisions and likewise many recollections of the hardships that were now past. For during all the seven days of their march through the land of the Cardukians, they were continually fighting, and they suffered more evils than all which they had suffered taken together at the hands of the king and Tissaphernes. In the feeling, therefore, that they were rid of these troubles, they lay down happily to rest. That is an excerpt from book four of the Anabasis of Xenophon. And this book contains some of the most memorable and famous scenes of the whole work, so I'm very excited to share with you this uh, set of highlights this week. And I'm pleased to announce that I plan on interrupting this little detour we've been taking through Xenophon. And in two weeks, we should have ready for you The Life of Agesilaus, Episode 1. And as you know, our mission here at The Cost of Glory is to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes following Plutarch, Plutarch's lives. The goal, of course, is always to give you a little bit more juice in your life. So I hope that this jaunt through Xenophon has been giving you some of that. Uh, but stay tuned for Agesilaus in two weeks. And I'll finish the analysis, don't worry. Um, after Agesilaus, there are seven books in total, so this will take us through a little bit more than halfway. But Agesilaus is actually really relevant to the Anabasis story, as you'll see, so they, they combine well. Before we begin, a word from our sponsor. If you wanted to get deeper into the mindset of an ancient leader, philosopher, thinker, warrior, what would be the best way? Well, besides listening to this podcast, it would be to learn ancient Greek, the language of Plutarch, of Homer, of the New Testament, of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. I consider ancient Greek to be a life skill that anyone who is both ambitious and curious should have. Latin would be a close second, relatively close. And you just watch. In 10 years, way more people are going to agree with me on that point. I'm going to see to that, and so are our sponsors today. Ancient Language Institute specializes in high-quality online Latin and Greek teaching. You might remember I was thinking of doing something like this a while back, but other work caught up. And, you know, these guys are really cranking, and they're friends now, too. So I'm really pleased to support them. Uh, or be supported by them in this case, Ancient Language Institute is announcing an in-person, intensive, 10-day, learn-to-read-the-Greek Bible, that is the New Testament, camp this summer. It's August 14th through 25th. It'll be in Eugene, Oregon, at the campus of the University of Oregon. So this is an in-person event which will supplement and be supplemented by their already extensive online offerings. Uh, the Greek Bible is pedagogically a great place to start with Greek, even if the New Testament isn't your thing at all. Well, it is a world classic, but it's also pretty easy Greek, and it's the same language as Plato and Homer and certainly Plutarch spoke and wrote in. So if you want to take this intensive Bible course, though, you'll need at least a low intermediate level of Greek to start, which you can get by taking just one semester of Ancient Language Institute's online classes in Greek in the meantime. The class times online are flexible. They're based on student availability. 
Check out their website at ancientlanguage.com. I've also got a direct link to the Greek Bible camp in the show notes as well. Many thanks, Ancient Language Institute, for being fans of the Cost of Glory. And here's a message of my own. How could you benefit from improving your writing and or speaking skills professionally, personally, relationally? Well, the Greeks and later the Romans following them saw great persuasive writing and great persuasive speaking as two sides of the same coin. And they thought that these were learnable, trainable skills and also the most important skills for an ambitious person to have in a free society. And they call that training the art of rhetoric. It was by far the bulk of all formal education for the leading members of society. Alexander the Great learned rhetoric from his teacher Aristotle. Julius Caesar studied rhetoric. He was a great general, yes, but he was also one of Rome's greatest speakers and writers in his day. And he was considered second maybe only to Cicero. So probably wouldn't have gotten as far as he did if he hadn't had that skill under his belt. And also modern figures like say, a Napoleon or a Frederick Douglass have studied classical rhetoric intensely. It's a very old tradition. Well, Ancient Life Coach is hosting a week-long leadership retreat this summer focused on training you in the fundamentals of classical rhetoric. And I want to ask you a second question. What kind of positive change in energy level, inspiration, motivation... Could it bring about in your life to contemplate and touch the monuments of a great civilization? Well, this is why we are doing it in Rome, because we think place really matters. And on this retreat, we're not going to just learn rhetoric. We're also going to show you the highlights of the city of Rome and point out the places where great pivotal speeches were made, great actions were taken in Roman history, and the men who walk through those streets are going to be the object of our contemplation. And we're, we're really trying to get you in a different mental space where you can learn more, remember more, and change more. So go to ancientlifecoach.com retreat to find out more and submit an application. We'd love to have you. All right. So I read a quote at the beginning of the episode about Xenophon of the Greeks being relieved after passing through the land of the Carduchians. But that's not where this book starts. You may recall, we left off in the last episode, Xenophon and his fellow officers, they decide of all the routes that they could take, they're going to go north, cutting across what's now the east of modern Turkey. Kurdistan is the region. The Carduchians are possibly the ancient ancestors of the Kurds. Uh, but it's a mountainous region that allegedly the Persian king sent an army of 120,000 strong to subdue them, and nobody returned alive. So it's got a reputation for being an unfriendly place. They're not subjects of the king. So they've still got some trouble to get through. And they begin their ascent, I'm going to, summarize here for you. They, they start their ascent through the land of the Cartuchians. They get up to a pass and they're hoping, they, they actually come to some villages. Um, the Cartuchians flee 
from the villages. Not a great sign. Uh, but as soon as they get to these villages, they, they refrain from plundering and burning because they really want to give these people a chance to just let them pass through peacefully. Maybe we can just, you know, we're, we're not going to stay here. We're not trying to take over your land. We just got to get through. Uh, but that doesn't work. And in the evening on the very first day, the sun goes down, it's dark, and they, they immediately start getting attacked by a band of these Carduchians. They're throwing stones at them and shooting arrows at them. And they kill a few and they wound some others. So even though there are not that many of them. So this is just not boding well for this passageway through. And the Greeks camp out this night. He says, thus the Greeks bivouacked for that night in the villages while the Carduchians kindled many fires round about upon the mountains and kept themselves in sight of one another. So that's just imagine that very frightening, foreboding scene. And as they pass through this land in the mountains, the weather's bad. It rains a lot. And here's an example of what they have to deal with as they're going through this land and basically just fighting constantly with these mountain tribes. The volunteers, about 2,000 in number, they're trying some maneuver here. They set out on their march and there was a heavy downpour of rain. Have you ever hiked in conditions like that? Usually people postpone or cancel their hikes when it's just pouring rain. At the same time, Xenophon with the rear guard began advancing toward the visible way out in order that the enemy might be giving their attention to that road and the party taking the roundabout route might, so far as possible, escape observation. But as soon as the troops of the rear guard were at the gorge, which they had to cross before marching up the steep hill, the details aren't really that important here, but at that moment the barbarians began to roll down round stones large enough for a wagon load, with larger and smaller ones also. They came down with a crash upon the rocks below, and the fragments of them flew in all directions, so that it was quite impossible even to approach the ascending road. And these people are practicing guerrilla tactics on them. I mean, just think of the toughness and endurance that all this requires of your average soldier. It's, it's kind of harrowing. Here's another scene. When day was beginning to break, they took up their march silently in battle array against the enemy. This is the Greeks. Uh, for there was a mist, and consequently they got close up to them without being observed. When they did catch sight of one another, the trumpets sounded, and the Greeks raised the battle cry and rushed upon the enemy. And the Carduchians did not meet their attack, but abandoned the road and took to flight. Only a few of them, however, were killed, for they were agile fellows. So it's really hard to defeat that there's no battles that they're fighting really there's just they're just getting rocks and arrows rained upon them and these people will just retreat up to the hills they're very nimble the greeks are in their heavy armor uh it's very tough going and the carduchians also have this wicked longbow here's what xenophon says as bowmen they were most excellent they had bows nearly three cubits long i think that's about five feet probably and their arrows 
were more than two cubits, and when they shot, they would draw their strings by pressing with the left foot against the lower end of the bow, and their arrows would go straight through shields and breastplates. Whenever they got hold of them, the Greeks would use these arrows as javelins, fitting them with thongs. So big bows, big arrows. It reminds me of this passage on the longbow, on the English longbow that I read a long time ago in Trevelyan's History of England. Now here's a quote from a medieval English guy. My yeoman father taught me how to draw, how to lay my body in my bow, not to draw with strength of arms as diverse other nations do. I had my bows bought me according to my age and strength, as I increased in them, so my bows were made bigger and bigger, for men shall never shoot well unless they be brought up to it. So what this guy is talking about is he lays his body in the bow, and the English don't keep their left hand steady then draw the bow with their right hand. They actually keep the right hand at rest. They hold the string, and then they, they kind of press the weight of the body, kind of twisting uh, with the with the leverage of the body into the horns of the bow. So they kind of bend the bow. And, and it, it's like a full body motion that at least the English guy that I just quoted said, you, you have to really be raised up in this to have the proper strength and leverage points. So this is the situation that the Carduchians have with their equipment. They're just uh, master bowmen. You can see that would be very useful in the mountains. Uh, it's very tough going for the Greeks. But finally, the Greeks get to this river valley that is the borderland between the Carduchians and the next tribe over up north. And this is where they all take that relief, this passage that I read. They slept well that night, Xenophon says. And, you know, they have a nice long sleep and they're, they think that they're free from troubles. But then they wake up and they see on the other side of the river, the Persians. Well, it's Orontas, which is the satrap of Armenia. And he's got a pretty big force there ready to intercept them if they try to cross. That's unfortunate. They make their way down to the river and they try to cross with their shields over their heads so they don't get arrows rained down upon them. But it's too deep for that. They are going to have to swim if they want to cross the river, which means no shields, which means pretty certain death against a large army with a lot of archers. So they swim back to the banks and they reconvene. And then they look back up the valley and... The Carduchians, they camp kind of up the valley a ways, I don't know, maybe a mile up, and they, they see the Carduchians with a war band camped out right in the spot that they had just left the night before. Nuts. Well, so they decide to camp near the banks for the night, kind of not knowing what they're going to do, and Xenophon has a dream. Here's what he says. But Xenophon had a dream. He thought that he was bound in fetters, but that the fetters fell off from him of their own accord, so that he was released and could take as long strides as he pleased. When the dawn came, he went to Chirisophus, and so he tells uh, his Lacedaemonian, the Spartan guy who's in charge, Chirisophus, 
the, the main general, the first among equals, that he had a good dream. And Chirisophus says, well, that's, that's a very positive sign. Because <laughs> that's how they think about these things. And they sacrifice to discern the will of the gods. And the omens are good. Hmm. Well, they still don't have any answers. But the next thing that happens is this. While Xenophon was breakfasting, two young men came running up to him, for all knew that they might go to him whether he was breakfasting or dining, and that if he were asleep, they might awaken him and tell him whatever they might have to tell that concerned the war. In the present case, the young men reported that they had happened to be gathering dry sticks for the purpose of making a fire, and that while so occupied, they had descried across the river among some rocks that reached down to the very edge of the river, an old man and a woman and some little girls putting away what looked like bags of clothes in a cavernous rock. When they saw this proceeding, they said they made up their minds that it was safe for them to cross, for this was a place that was not accessible to the enemy's cavalry. They accordingly stripped, maybe it's kind of a rapids area, um, they accordingly stripped, keeping only their daggers this is the boys, and started across naked, Xenophon's soldiers, I mean, supposing that they would have to swim, but they went on and got across without wetting themselves even up to the middle. Once on the other side, they took the clothes and came back again. So they, they go across at this you know, rapids area, maybe, and they st steal the clothes of this little family that came to do whatever they were doing by the river. And so they, you know, these boys bring the message back and this seems like a, a great place to cross. And, and Xenophon proposes this plan to Chirisophus and they like it. And Xenophon kind of, kind of hints here that he's, he's getting this message because he's indicated that he's open to, to information at, at all hours. And this is, I think a good lesson for somebody in a position of leadership, but not, you know, supreme leadership that you can distinguish yourself. You can make yourself of more value if you keep the lines of communication open between as many people as possible and you on your side. That seems to be what he's trying to tell us here. So they split the army Chirisophus goes upstream, he follows the youths to this crossing, and Xenophon's in the rear guard here. Um, they leave some of the troops back at the ford that they started at. Uh, but here's what happens. They set out, the young men leading the way and keeping the river on the left, and the distance to the ford was about four stadia, that's about a half a mile, and they proceeded. The squadrons of the enemy's cavalry kept alongside opposite to them on the other side of the river. When they reached the ford in the riverbank, they halted under arms, and Chirisophus put a wreath on his head, threw off his cloak, and took up his arms, giving orders to all the others to do the same. He also directed the captains to lead their companies in column, part of them upon his left and the rest upon his right. Meanwhile, the soothsayers were offering sacrifice to the river, and the enemy were shooting arrows and discharging slings, but not yet reaching their mark. And when the sacrifices proved favorable, all the soldiers struck up the paean, their battle hymn, and raised the war shout, while the women, every one of them, 
joined their cries with the shouting of the men, for there were a large number of prostitutes in the camp. End quote. So they've, they've taken some camp followers along with them to, to force this crossing to all cross together. Not everybody there is fighting, but, you know, the, the ladies who've joined up with them are, are doing their part. And Xenophon, at that point, they charge. Xenophon runs back to the place where they tried to cross the day before, and he takes a big chunk of the army right up to the banks. And it's just some cavalry that the enemy has left behind on that side. All the archers, it seems, are all off defending the shallow ford where Chirisophus is. Uh, and so the cavalry that's left behind at the ford are, they, they're spooked and they retreat. Xenophon, they, they, they just charge up to the, to the riverbanks and the cavalry just run away. And Chirisophus overwhelms the forces on his end. So this army that seems so imposing, it, it just melts and retreats away. Uh, I guess it wasn't really strong enough to fight the 10,000 Greeks head on. They just hoped that they could stop them at the river long enough for the Carduchians to butcher them. Uh, but meanwhile, Xenophon still hasn't crossed with his part of the army. And the Carduchians, they see commotion happening and they figure if this is their time to strike while these Greeks are distracted with this river crossing. And so they come charging down to the banks at a run and they're slinging their stones, war whoops and all. But then Xenophon lines up his troops and he tells them, well, here's what he says. The orders he gave to his own men were that when the slingers' stones reached them and the shields rang, they were to strike up the pion and charge upon the enemy. And when the enemy turned to flight and the trumpeter on the riverbank sounded the charge, they were to face about to the right. The file closers were to take the lead, and I'm not sure what that means, and all of them were to run across as fast as they could, with each man keeping his proper place in the line so that they should not interfere with one another. And then he means that they need to cross the river at that point together in order. And he that got to the other side first would be the best man. And so that's what they do. The sling stones hit the shields, they charge, and they, they charge in a group. And this basically scares the Carduchians all the way back to the mountains. They make a, a brief charge, and these mountain guys just flee in terror. They're, they're not really built for this kind of head-to-head, -head, flat ground, football linebacker kind of warfare that the Greeks are so good at. And I, I like what Xenophon says here. He that got to the other side the first would be the best man, the aristos in Greek. How's that for an incentive? If you win, no golden cup, no extra pot of beans that night, just the satisfaction of knowing that your commander calls you the best. And how would you like to be a part of a team or an organization where that was enough? And so the rest of the army crosses in peace. And there's a little takeaway here, I think, about taking on an entrenched foe, the Persians in this case, but who else could you use this on? What the Greeks do is they divide their attention. You might try this. Divide the entrenched foe's attention, make them commit one way, spread themselves thin, and then you surprise attack on the other side. And the panic of not being able to readjust and recompensate in time, it might be enough to snap their resolve. And that's what happened 
in this case. And so now they're in Armenia at last. And the land here in Armenia, it's a lot easier. The locals are a lot friendlier. There's a Persian lieutenant governor in the area who is still trying to destroy them. His name is Tirabazus, and Tirabazus actually becomes a somewhat important figure in the 4th century in Greek history. For you buffs out there, he's the guy who negotiated the Peace of Antalkidas in 387, or the King's Peace, as it's known. More on that in the life of Agesilaus. Uh, but th- the big problem that they have in Armenia, not so much the locals and not even so much the Persians, though that's an issue, um, it's, it's the winter. Lake Van is nearby. It's a large inland lake. Kicks off a lot of moisture. And there are heavy, heavy snows. And uh, it's cold. At one point, they have to cross the Euphrates River, which, I mean, they've already been following the Tigris and now... In Armenia, they're crossing the Euphrates River, which is it's kind of amazing how deep into northeast Turkey that river starts. Um, but lucky for them, it's close to the sources and it's not that high. Uh, they're just up to the navel as they cross. But that's Snowmelt River, I'm sure. So it's got to be really cold. At one point, they're going through the mountains and the snow is six feet deep. Some of their baggage animals, a lot of their baggage animals and Camp slaves die. 30 soldiers die from cold exposure at one point. And the enemy is harassing them in their rear guard. Here's a little passage. It gives you just some of a sense of the difficulty here. Some of the soldiers likewise were falling behind. Those whose eyes had been blinded by the snow or whose toes had rotted off by reason of the cold. It was a protection to the eyes against the snow if a man marched with something black in front of him, and a protection to the feet if one kept moving and never rested, and if he took his shoes off at night. But in all cases where men slept with their shoes on, the straps sank into their flesh and the shoes froze on their feet. For what they were wearing, since their old footwear had given out, were rough shoes made of freshly flayed ox hides. So they're kind of wrapping strips of leather around their feet for shoes. Um, and it's probably a hassle to take them off at night. And some of them are thinking, oh, I'll be warmer if I have my shoes on. But that ends up proving to be a bad plan. But they, they finally get to some villages and they, they sort of seize the villages. They need supplies. But the locals don't put up that much resistance. And the Greeks end up capturing the chief of the village and his daughter. The daughter's just been married, but the the groom, the husband is away on some business. The chief decides, let's be nice to these people. Considering the circumstances, a pretty wise choice. And the chief, uh, he tells them where the good wine is buried. And uh, he basically... He plays the gracious host, even though he's a hostage. And here's Xenophon's description of the way these Armenians live. And you can file this under our, seems to be kind of a recurring category of uh, sampling local amenities. The houses were underground with a mouth like that of a well, but spacious below 
And while entrances were tunneled down for the beasts of burden, the human inhabitants descended by a ladder. In the houses were goats, sheep, cattle, fowls, and their young. And all the animals were reared and took their fodder there in the houses. Here were also wheat, barley, and beans, and barley wine, and large bowls. Floating on the top of this drink were the barley grains, and in it were straws, some larger and others smaller, without joints. And when one was thirsty, he had to take these straws into his mouth and suck. It was an extremely strong drink, unless one diluted it with water, and extremely good when one was used to it. And a little bit more festivity further on here. On the next day, Xenophon took the village chief and set out to visit Chirisophus, who's in another village. Um, there's a few villages around here that they're bivouacked in. Whenever he passed a village, he would turn aside to visit the troops quartered there. And everywhere he found them faring sumptuously and in fine spirits. There was no place from which the men would let them go, the locals, that is, unless they had served them breakfast. And no place where they did not serve on the same table lamb, kid, pork, veal, and poultry, together with many loaves of bread, some of wheat and some of barley. And whenever a man wanted, out of good fellowship, to drink another's health, he would draw him to the bowl, and then one had to stoop over and drink from it, sucking like an ox. So I guess there's not individual cups that they pour into. They all just kind of bend over one big bowl. To the village chief, the locals offered the privilege of taking whatever he wanted. He declined for the most part to accept anything, but whenever he caught sight of one of his kinsmen, he would always take the man to his side. And Xenophon here just really fascinated by the details of gift exchange between a leader and his followers. You know, this is kind of a local chief, a local governor who's sort of in charge of maybe several villages, or at least he's a he's a figure that is a, a, a person of status in these other villages. Um, so he's not taking any gifts. They're offering, though, probably some kind of protocol here that Xenophon is trying to figure out. Again, when they reached Chirisophus, Xenophon found his troops also feasting in their quarters, crowned with wreaths of hay and served by Armenian boys in their strange foreign dress. And they were showing the boys what to do by signs, as if they were deaf and dumb. And the mood is really good here in Armenia. And the chief there tells them a trick for the snow. He says, wrap small bags around the feet of their horses and pack animals so that they can actually walk instead of sinking up to their bellies in the snow. It's nice. It's kind of like snow tires for your vehicle. But then they have to move along and they pass out of Armenia proper and on into the land of some more warlike tribes called the, that the Greeks at least call them the Chalibians, which in Greek means men of steel. They were known for their skill in working in tempered iron. And as they're going along, they get to a point where the enemy is taking control of a pass with a substantial force and they're trying to decide what to do and there's a little bit of intercity banter here that I think 
gives you a sense of what it's like to do a campaign together with a coalition of different forces from different cities, different men from all over. And so Xenophon is making a proposal about sneaking on the enemy from higher ground. The enemy's on the pass. And Xenophon says, well, let's let's get the higher ground at night. And the word he uses here is steal the position, which is a military term. And uh, he says something that's worth remembering here in a wider leadership context too. So I'm just going to read you the whole brief passage here. It is far better, therefore, to turn to the unoccupied part of the mountain and to try to steal a position by eluding the enemy's observation and to seize it by getting ahead of them, if we can, rather than to fight against strong places and men prepared. For it is far easier to march uphill without fighting than over level ground with enemies on this side and that. One can see what is in front of him more easily by night if he is not fighting than by day if he is fighting. And the rough road is more comfortable to men who are going over it on foot without fighting than the smooth road to men who are being pelted on the head. And as for stealing a position, that does not seem to me impossible, for we can go during the night so as not to be seen, and we can get far enough away from the enemy so as not to be heard. And he gives a few more details here. He says, but why should I be the man to make suggestions about stealing? For as I hear, Chirisophus, you Lacedaemonians, at least those among you who belong to the peers, practice stealing even from childhood. He's talking about the Spartan Agoge, their Spartan training regimen. And count it not disgraceful, but honorable to steal anything that the law does not prevent you from taking. And in order that you may steal with all possible skill and may not, and may try not to be caught at it, it is the law of your land that if you are caught stealing, you are flogged. Now, therefore, it is just the time for you to s display your training and to take care that we do not get caught stealing any of the mountain so that we should not get a beating. So he's kind of ribbing Chirisophus here. And Chirisophus says, Well, for all that, said Chirisophus, I hear on my side that you Athenians are terribly clever at stealing the public funds, even though the danger is terribly great for the stealer, and in fact, that your best people do it the most, at least if they really are your best, who are deemed worthy to rule. Hence, it is time for you also to be displaying your training. So that there's some funny bantering going back and forth, and the, the Athenians were very inclined to believe that their democratically elected politicians were always stealing from the public funds. It's like a running joke, almost. And they, they do find some other guys, some non-Athenian, non-Spartans, to steal the pass, so to speak. And going to skip a number of things here, a disturbing scene or two, certainly some interesting ethnography uh, hopefully we'll get a big budget epic Netflix series made sometime of Anabasis. Uh, but until then, you could go read the book. But here's a scene that will without a doubt be in that mega blockbuster epic series. It's one of the most famous scenes in the, in the whole book. So they, they've got this local guide. Thus taking the lead when he had brought them into the hostile territory, he kept urging them to spread abroad fire and ruin, 
thereby making it clear that it was with this end in view that he had come and not out of goodwill toward the Greeks. So they're, they're, they have this local guide who's being really nice to them, but he's also saying, hey, why don't you burn this village over there? Um, so Xenophon's seeing his motivation now. Um, on the fifth day, they did in fact reach the mountain. Its name was Thakes. Now, as soon as the vanguard got to the top of the mountain and caught sight of the sea, a great shout went up. And the guide has promised them that he would take them to a mountain where they could see the sea. Uh, but Xenophon doesn't know what's happening yet. And when Xenophon and the rear guard heard it, this shout, they imagined that other enemies were also attacking them in the front, for there were enemies following behind them from the district that was in flames. And the rear guard had killed some of them and captured others by setting an ambush and had also taken about 20 wicker shields covered with raw, shaggy ox hides. But as the shout kept getting louder and nearer, as the successive ranks that came up all began to run at full speed toward the ranks ahead that were one after another joining in the shout, and as the shout kept growing far louder, as the number of men grew steadily greater, it became quite clear to Xenophon that there was something of unusual importance. So he mounted a horse, took with him Lycius and the cavalry, and pushed ahead to lend aid. And in a moment they heard the soldiers shouting, The sea! The sea! And passing the word along. The Greek there is Thalata! Thalata! They're chanting this rhythmically. Then all the troops of the rear guard likewise broke into a run, and the pack animals began racing ahead and the horses. And when all had reached the summit, then indeed they fell to embracing one another, and the generals and captains as well, with tears in their eyes. So that's a scene that has been reverberating in European culture for centuries, and you'll see people refer to it by the Greek, often thalasa, thalasa. The Xenophon's text reads thalata, thalata, the sea, the sea. In the Attic dialect, it's thalata. And in most Greek, it's going to be thalasa. T.E. Lawrence, later Lawrence of Arabia, was a ardent admirer of Xenophon. And when he went on a bike ride as a teenager in France, he wrote back, to somebody the following. He said, Suddenly the sun leaped from behind a cloud. He was on a long bike ride. And a sort of silver shiver passed over the gray. Then I understood and instinctively burst out with a cry of Thalassa, Thalassa, that echoed down the valley. Lawrence, by the way, used Xenophon's Anabasis as an inspiration for his account of organizing the Arab revolts in World War I. And there are a few references to Xenophon in that book. One of them, he actually talks about the Bustard. I don't know if you remember from book one, which is this kind of pheasant-like bird that haunts Arabia, the desert. And uh, he says, well, Xenophon was right. It does taste good. And in one passage of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, that account that Lawrence wrote of the Arab uprising, he refers to his journey through the mountains of the Hijaz as a march upland. So an interesting connection there to another 
first-person soldier adventure story, Lawrence of Arabia. Great book, his Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Now then, they're very glad to see the sea. Greeks are really sea people. Uh, But they're not at the sea yet. It's a little ways off through some rough terrain. And they go on for another three days. And they reach a little river. And there's a great scene that I'm going to read for you here. There they had on the right above them an exceedingly difficult bit of ground, and on the left another river, into which the boundary stream that they had to cross emptied. Now this stream was fringed with trees, not large ones, but of thick growth, and when the Greeks came up, they began felling them in their haste to get out of the place as speedily as possible. But the Macronians, the He's identified the inhabitants as Macronians earlier. The Macronians, armed with wicker shields and lances and hair tunics, were drawn up in line of battle opposite the place where the Greeks must cross, and they were cheering one another on and throwing stones into the stream. But they never reached the Greeks or did them any harm. At this moment, one of the Peltasts came up. This is a light-armed troop. One of the Peltasts came up to Xenophon, a man who said that he had been a slave at Athens, saying that he knew the language of these people. I think, he went on, that this is my native country, and if there is nothing to hinder, I should like to have a talk with them. Well, there is nothing to hinder, said Xenophon, so talk with them and learn to begin with who they are. In reply to his inquiry, the former slave, they said, Macronians. Well then, said Xenophon, ask them why they are arrayed against us and want to be our enemies. And they replied, because you are coming against our land. The generals directed the man to say, we have not come to do you any harm whatsoever, but we have been at war with the king and are on our way back to Greece and we want to reach the sea. The Macronians asked whether they would give pledges to this effect. They replied that they were ready both to give and to receive pledges. Thereupon the Macronians gave the Greeks a barbarian lance, and the Greeks gave them a Greek lance, for the Macronians declared that these were pledges. And both sides called the gods to witness. I think he was maybe expecting when they said pledges that they would, they meant an exchange of hostages, but it was very reassuring that they could just trade spears. Uh, But this is the policy that the Greeks have been making as they've been going along to try to make friends when they can. They'd rather not fight, but they end up fighting a whole lot. But this soldier that he mentions, this Peltast, this light-armed troop, fighting in this army, taken probably as a boy, as a slave from this region to Athens. And who knows how, but he makes his way into the army of Cyrus the Younger. And again, who knows how he became a mercenary and joined Cyrus's army. He probably ran away and, you know, told some people a fake story about himself. But here he ends up in the army of the 10,000, back in his home territory again as a man. And unfortunately, we don't hear whether he decided to stay or go. But probably in that mega epic blockbuster series about the Anabasis, I think he's going to stay. 
don't you? Well, all right, they have one more pass to cross before they actually get to the sea, and it's guarded by the next tribe over, not these Macronians. Uh, And I'll spare you most of the details, but here's what Xenophon says before the final successful charge. And as Xenophon was going back from the soldiers on the right to the soldiers on the left, he said to the troops, Soldiers, these men yonder whom you see are the only ones who still stand in the way of our being forthwith at the place we have long been striving to reach. If we possibly can, we must simply eat these fellows raw. So that's his little motivational speech. Um, But the enemy turn and run after the Greeks make a vigorous charge. So they ended up not having to be any need to eat anybody raw, thankfully. And at last, they've made their way to the sea. This leads right down to the coastal plain. And once they get down to the coastal plain, here's what happens. After accomplishing the ascent, the Greeks took up quarters in numerous villages, which contained provisions in abundance. Now, for the most part, there was nothing here, which they really found strange. But the swarms of bees in the neighborhood were numerous, and the soldiers who ate of the honey all went off their heads and suffered from vomiting and diarrhea, and not one of them could stand up. But those who had eaten a little were like people exceedingly drunk, while those who had eaten a great deal seemed crazy, or even in some cases, dying men. So they lay there in great numbers as though the army had suffered a defeat, and great despondency prevailed. On the next day, however, no one had died. And at approximately the same hour as they had eaten the honey, they began to come to their senses. And on the third or fourth day, they got up as if from a drugging. So there's another sample of the local delicacies passage for you. And this is actually a a documented phenomenon. Uh, When bees make honey from the flowers of certain kinds of plants, in this case, probably the rhododendron ponticum, they can have a hallucinogenic or even a toxic effect. Uh, Apparently some people use this as an aphrodisiac, but you have to be careful about your dose because you don't know quite the ratio that the bees have put of that kind of flower versus another flower. So you could really get quite a lot of variance in concentration there. But this actually, this honey proved to be disastrous for Pompey the Great when he was campaigning against Mithridates. He had a legion come through this area and the locals fed the soldiers some of this honey and a thousand men were taken by this honey madness and slaughtered by the locals in their weakness. So be careful out there. Uh, Finally, they get to Trapezus, which is a Greek city on the Black Sea coast, and they at last breathe a sigh of relief. It's a long way home from where they are now, but at least they're at the sea. And they make a sacrifice to Zeus Soter, Zeus the Savior. Do you remember the sneeze in the last episode? They made a vow to him upon that good omen. And the Greeks institute games. And this is a very Greek way of celebrating a hard-won victory by working out, or maybe just, you know, you could call it striving in a more or less peaceful contest here. And Xenophon describes it like this. 
They instituted also athletic games on the mountainside, just where they were encamped. The events were a stadium race, that's a sprint, for boys, most of them belonging to the captives. So he's saying most of the contestants in this sprint were actually their prisoners. Uh, A long race in which more than 60 Cretans took part, wrestling, boxing, and the Pancration. And it made a fine spectacle, for there were a great many entries, and inasmuch as the comrades of the contestants were looking on, there was a great deal of rivalry. And there were horse races also, and the riders had to drive their horses down the steep slope, turn them around on the shore, and bring them back up again to the altar. And on the way down, most of the horses rolled over and over, while on the way up, against the exceedingly steep incline, they found it hard to keep on at a walk. So there was much shouting and laughter and cheering. And with that, book four comes to a close. So next time you're enduring a lot of stress and difficulty, think of those soldiers in the mountains and just think how many of them must have felt at times, I can't take it anymore. And then they did again and again. You have more in you than you realize. And think about the relief of getting out of the land of the Carduchians, thinking that the troubles are over, only to find that you've got a guarded river to force your way across. What's the river that you're facing now? See you soon. Check out the retreat. Ancientlifecoach.com slash retreat. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.